You're listening to Method to the Madness on KALX Berkeley 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Ali Nazar, and today we have with us Gus Newport, former mayor of Berkeley. Hey, Gus, how's it going? Fine, thank you. Glad to be here. Uh, thanks for coming in the studio. Um, and Gus is going to be with us today talking about his illustrious career. He's had so many different amazing um, experiences and achievements, uh, a civil rights leader, uh, a, a, a beacon of the left. He's been involved in so many different things. So I want to ask you about a few of the different experiences you've had, Gus. You can educate us. First, I want to start in Boston um, and with the Dudley Street Project. It was already underway when I got there. I was the mayor of Berkeley for two terms, eight years, and decided I didn't need any more. I was invited to the University of Massachusetts at Boston as a first senior fellow in the William Monroe Trotter Institute. I taught a class on alternative economics and, and, and public policy. And people from the Dudley Street Project started monitoring my class. Then I was asked to speak on several panels. It turned out it started with a couple of guys, one an architect and one a news reporter, who had discovered that the poverty money that was being sent to Boston was being spent downtown to build up different areas around City Hall and whatever else and wasn't getting to this part of Roxbury where there was real poverty, a lot of vacant lots and whatever else. What was the poverty money? What was that? It was CDB Jones. It was different kinds of money that came based on poverty statistics and indexes and whatever else to upgrade say, the quality of houses, bring jobs, uh, just beautify the place and whatever else. That was that was kind of money that was available to cities during that time. It had since the 60s, going back to the Johnson era. So these guys put an initiative on the ballot uh, for Roxbury to secede from the rest of Boston, and that <laughs> blew the minds of the city. I first read about it in England, you know, through the Herald Tribune when I was over there visiting, and they invited me to be on some of the early panels and things uh, because of what we'd done at Dudley Street and, and how East Palo Alto got formed when they separated from Palo Alto down here. So it really was a shock to the city. And um, they'd begun working, engaging people, working with MIT, the Department of Urban Study and Planning, gathering data and whatever else. There was a lot of vacant lots uh, with a whole lot of debris on them because developers, what we called uh, environmental racism in those days, would just dump their debris because they didn't didn't have to pay the tipping fees and all that. And the, there was no political might in these areas. So, uh, What kind of uh, people lived in Roxbury at the time? Mainly black, uh, people from uh, Cape Verde, people from Haiti, uh, some people from the Caribbean, etc., was like, as I recall, 30% black, something like 27% Cape Verdean, another 15, 20% Latino, and 10% white. And uh, But an interesting thing happened. After they started engaging and got organized, they decided they wanted to create an organization that would help turn around the city. And they decided that the makeup of the board that Community residents should control 50-plus percent of it. And they gave four seats to each ethnic group. Didn't take it out of balance because of the numbers. And the academics in Boston, which has more colleges and universities in place, blew their mind. They said, my God, we didn't ever thought about that. But the people said, 
we want to focus on the issues and not on each other. And so they came up with this Dudley Street organization that was an organization to create advocacy, planning, and organizing. And because of the law in the state of Massachusetts, very seldom used, that a nonprofit can get eminent domain authority under certain circumstances, they said, we want to create our own master plan. And out of that master plan, they were given eminent domain authority. And to this day, is the only nonprofit in the United States of America that was able to get that power. That's amazing. So, Gus, tell us a little bit about, for people who don't know a lot about community development, what is a master plan? What, what is the purpose and function of a master plan? A master plan is to get all the data to look at the poverty indexes, to look at uh, lack of jobs, crime, et cetera, and things like that, look at the gaps, uh, take this data and create GIS maps and whatever else so that you can educate everybody from people in the community to bankers to academics. We were very lucky because MIT assisted us, Tufts assisted us, UMass Boston, so we got a lot of help. And they would send students to walk the streets with us to go door-to-door to get data so that we can create then agendas from that or whatever else. But in communities like this, 70% has a household of single women. And 70%. Right, and, wow. and that, 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 that happens until this day. And... They're shy about asking questions because they think they're not educated, they don't know. They come to find out that the questions they had were all similar. Everybody was concerned about the same thing. So this was an empowering sort of fact. We early on got a a professional facilitation organization to come and teach facilitation skills to parents, to young people, to small businesses, and to nonprofits. So each could have a discussion and create an integrated sort of plan that became the master plan. We asked the people because most of them, their lives aren't stable because rental housing, you know, kept moving and going up, just like we got today almost. The, the median cost for housing in Boston back in the 80s in those days was between $500,000 and a million dollars. Really? Home ownership. Rents kept going sky high, et cetera, whatever else. So when you ask finally people within the master plan, what kind of housing do you want? We want affordable home ownership, if that's possible, to stabilize our lives so we don't have to keep moving from place to place. And that's how we looked at the land trust. We went to the land trust. The first community land trust in the U.S. was founded in southwest Georgia called New Communities, and they got the idea by a group of people, including Slater King, Martin Luther King's uncle, Andy Young, a guy named Don Jelnick who was on the Berkeley City Council from New York, a Jewish lawyer and whatever else, and they had a meeting, and we sent a group of people to Israel to look at a plan for community land trust to create affordable home ownership into perpetuity for people who were farmers and whatever else. And that's where we got the original idea. That there, The idea preceded Israel. In India, Mahat Gandhi created this kind of plan for people who were victims of the caste system. So we then brought that over, and we were able to get the banks to go along with it because we had the data and whatever else, and the banks created a community development corporation for affordable housing and one for small business. And because we challenged them, so that's when the Community Reinvestment Act came on board, they put 50% community people on the boards, and every bank put up between $500,000 and a million into that pot. And that's how we were able to turn this whole place around. We started out taking those vacant gardens, 15 acres of 30 were owned by the city. They take them through tax arrears. The plan was so good, they conveyed those acres to us. Wow. And we got them to mitigate the taxes. Then we use that as collateral 
to get a $2 million program-related investment from the Ford Foundation to purchase the other 15. And all that became collateral with other kinds of subsidies and whatever. So this is housing built into perpetuity for people with limited incomes. That Yeah, and it's, it's, so, uh, it's such an interesting story, especially in today's time where we're struggling with right. the concepts of affordable housing. And the, the, the mayor's race here in Berkeley is kind of centered on that topic. But all throughout the Bay Area, it's a big deal. And what I think is so fascinating about kind of the innovations in your career, Gus, is a, your ability to kind of help ground up movements like this. This is very much the story of the Lily Street Project seems to be this facilitation of a, bu- a bunch of the local neighborhood people and being able to take control of their own kind of uh, future through the acquisition of real estate and the building of this thing. For people who don't know what a community land trust is, can you explain to us kind of what does that mean? A community land trust is a nonprofit organization which has a board. The land is taken into perpetuity by a plan to build. could be affordable home ownership. could be some co-op. It could be farms. It could be a variety of things based on what people think they most need. But that land, like I said, is kept into perpetuity, which is 99 years, to be utilized for something like that. So then private, for-profit developers can't come in and just take it or push people out or whatever else. If somebody who owns a home in a land trust gets on their feet and, and, and generates better income, when they sell it, they can't take out any more than 25% profit based on improvements they made and whatever else. Of the house itself. They don't of the house the land, itself. Right? Yeah, right. The land is owned by the nonprofit organization. So it's a it's a way to kind of create some shared ownership right, over right. Uh, us. And this was right. a big, you said it's, uh, how big was the geographic In this area? case, it was, it was 30 acres in the beginning, but it was sort of in the same area, sort of a blanket approach. It grew because other people, including people who even owned their own homes, wanted to move into it. And the city came and asked Dudley Street to do this in all the other neighborhoods, even in a city as great and as well highly educated as Boston. And, of course, you know, the financial analysis and all that stuff was actually finalized in the kibbutz system in Israel and whatever else. So we had the knowledge of how to do that. And we also had an Institute for Community Economics, which is a national community land trust organization which created community development finance institutes that made there were banking funds available at lower income. I ended up directing ICE, the Institute for Community Economics, years after I, I, I ran Dudley Street. So um, now, 30 years later, what's, the, what's kind of the epilogue of Dudley Street? It was such an amazing project and has created... Um, a lot of the, uh, interest in community land uh, trust, but how is it? What's what's happened? The federal government a few years ago had an oak, a program called Prime Neighborhoods or something like that. Dudley Street scored number one in the country, and for that they get like I think five million a year for five years, and they're able to create their own charter schools based on planning with the community for what they wanted to see in their schools. An example of how to upgrade their schools. They were able to get the best teachers in the school. They noticed that the uh, the uh, one of the schools, the schools for, for, for young kids, these kids were always coming home with scratches on their legs and whatever else. But the, but, but, but the schoolyard was made of cement. The community convinced them to dig it up and put sand in there. And after a while, they had no more scars. So it's it just common sense thinking. 
which government, school district and everybody else often doesn't think of. You know, they're always trying to cut corners and think they have such brilliant thing, but they're not focused on people. Um, we had a lot of young kids who were in our, our junior group get scholarships to Dartmouth and places like that, and they came back and continued to work in the area and whatever else, and people began talking about that. My God, how did you happen to do that? We were able to get them scholarships. That was just when student loans were starting to come online. And, you know, as you young students know, student loans is just it's, it's criminal. I mean, when I taught a graduate course at MIT, I couldn't believe some of these young people coming out of college with student loans of $200,000, $400,000. It was just terrible. So from a movement standpoint, those are the kinds of things you got to focus on. And we're talking to Gus Newport. He's former mayor of Berkeley and and has done so many different things, it's hard to explain them all. But we're talking about one of his major accomplishments is facilitating the Dudley Street Project in, in Boston, a community land trust that is still going strong to this day. One of the questions I have for you, Gus, kind of closing up that chapter, is the governance structure you talked about, which is really innovative, of having community members who are kind of at the controls of a nonprofit that owns a bunch of land. How how did you guys set up the, a sustainable structure to keep it that way? Well, like I said, fifty plus one fifty one percent of the all had to be community residents. We also the, had we also had board seats for small businesses, for representatives of churches, for some nonprofits, and a couple of seats even for elected officials. Though we never filled those. Uh, and so everybody felt that they had a role and you could have a kind And also, the land that was conveyed to us from the city, we have what we call a four-by-four four committee, four of the board representatives and four representatives from the city. So we made common decisions on how to disperse that land at what time, you know, and whatever else. So it was a learning situation for everybody. So it's the way that the actual nonprofit is structured is that that – structure has kept that authenticity yes. of yes. representation all these years, 30 right. years later. And that was written. And as we learned new things, we would have amended from time to time things that were more creative and more beneficial. But that's it. It's a constant analysis and learning thing. And today, do you know, like the community land trust model, which is so successful in this instance, are there a lot of other ones in the country today? There's about 400. I just came back from a conference in Park City, Utah, um, a month or so ago, and it was very, very, very pleasant. A lot of people participating, etc. Um, we had a little bit of concerns because the name of the national organization now is Grounded, used to be Grounded Community Solutions. The name got changed to Grounded Solutions, and that's because three of the sponsors is Fannie Mae now, Uh-oh. Wells Fargo, and Citibank. So I'm going to go in back and challenge that, and I think with the likes of Wells Fargo and them, they ought to be glad to get whatever they can to clean up their own. Yeah. Well, we're talking to Gus Newport, former mayor of Berkeley. This is Methods of the Madness on KALX Berkeley, 90.7 FM. And Gus, let's let's rewind a little bit in terms of uh, your timeline of your career and talk about the time when you were elected mayor originally of Berkeley and kind of how that story came about because that was another kind of innovative time in, in a political uh, environment that – I think uh, it's a very interesting story to tell, especially with this political season we're in right now. Well, I first came to Berkeley in 1968. I was working with an organization called United Research and Development Corporation in New York that was working with the Department of Labor 
on the new jobs programs and whatever else. I was sent both to Puerto Rico to do some job development programs as well as out here to California. And then I worked in Puerto Rico from 1971 to 70 for the Department of Labor. And um, a friend of mine was running federally funded programs and things for the city of Berkeley and invited me out to help them with some assistance, youth development jobs and other kinds of things. And I did a wage comparability survey for nonprofit organizations in both Berkeley and Oakland to look at the compatibility of wages they were receiving and whatever else. And then I was put on the planning commission, the police review commission, and I was then hired back to the city, including, uh, I forgot what it was, another department, but I had to engage a lot of the nonprofit and, and, and community organizations. I worked with BCA to reorganize their whole status. And we wrote a manifesto saying what all services city government should provide and whatever. And uh, Berkeley's first black mayor, Warden Widener, was in office when I got here. Berkeley had determined that it was going to take over PG&E and have a master police review commission. And Warren Widener moved to the middle and didn't do these things. So That was the first black man. Right. So Ron Dellums and John George and BCA and other people asked me what I consider running. And Ber- BCA I, was Berkeley Citizens Berkeley Action. Berkeley Citizens Action. I still had to compete against somebody that was already a BCA member on city council, John Denton, who was a white lawyer. And we went through several weeks. You had to get two-thirds of the vote before you could be the candidate. Um, I was nominated, and, and it was a funny thing because, you know, Berkeley probably gets more credit for being a progressive city than it is. I mean, Berkeley is a community with population. 50% of the people had undergraduate degrees, 25% graduate degrees, and there were a lot of what I call single-issue liberals. They pulled on me because they wanted somebody that was going against Warren Wyden. And, of course, I was also known, having been a close friend of Malcolm X's, I was trailing Malcolm four days before he was assassinated. And when he moved from the Nation of Islam to the organization of Afro-American Unity, I was one of the founding members. So I was fairly well known for some of those things. That's why we're doing this documentary now. Because the country does not yet know how Malcolm and Martin Luther King were coming close together. And Malcolm had given up violence and was moving to the civil rights movement. And he and Martin Luther King were about to go before the United Nations to file a suit against American hegemony, imperialism, and colonialism. And one of the things we're getting in this documentary is we got a a tape overhearing J. Edgar Hoover, FBI, saying these are the two most dangerous men in the world. 35 days after he made that statement, Malcolm was dead. Of course, Martin Luther King got killed actually a year after he gave the speech to break the silence, you know, against the Vietnam War. So all those things, civil rights and whatever else, also teach you how to engage community development. Because when I was with the Civil Rights Movement, I wrote the first concentrated employment 
training grant to the Department of Labor for Rochester, New York, my hometown. And I and a guy named Bob Turner, Ph.D. from Kansas State and a Rhodes Scholar, went to several cities, including Philadelphia, to the the Jewish economic vocational training and other kinds of places to look at job development and all these kinds of things. So, you know, you're not even thinking what all you're learning, what you're taking in. You're just on the run. So Then you show up in Berkeley with it and you have a chance to become right. mayor. I want to ask you about the Berkeley Citizen Actions, that manifesto, which was very famous. And you talk about Berkeley kind of maybe having a um, reputation that maybe it precedes itself in terms of or being a little bit more progressive than it is. But that document was a very left-wing it, progressive Right, document. it was. It was. And, of course, I'm not suggesting Berkeley wasn't very progressive I mean, because because the free speech movement was founded here sure. about the same time as the civil rights movement. And the anti-war movement. And, and the anti-war movement, yeah. And, of course— uh, there was there was there was a lot of transition, but and you were coming mayor after a lot of those things were kind of transitioning into the eighties and right. a different timeline. But can you t- speak to a couple of the maybe revolutionary planks in that manifesto, that Berkeley Citizens Action, and you as a leader kind of came to power on? Well, for instance, we were the first city to divest. That was on the ballot when I ran. Divest from South, South Africa. South Africa, yeah. We were the first city to pass domestic benefits, benefits for gay couples and stuff. What year was that? That would have been 1981, 1982. Wow. And that's because there was a, there was a, a gay faction within the po- politics of Berkeley. And I don't know if you know the name Holly Near, who no. was one of the new song singers, who was very close to Jane Fonda. Uh, Jane Fonda mentored her. She was in a play in New York called Hair, I believe it was. Okay. And uh, Holly had her own recording company. She was gay. I was the first man on the board. Uh, going back to Tom Hayden just dying, we also worked with him. And Jane Fonda actually did a fundraiser for me when I ran for mayor the first time. And the day that I reported to my office when I took office, I walk in, there's all these TV cameras, Jane Fonda sitting at my desk. (laughs) So it was just all these kinds of things. And there was a lot of student involvement in BCA, too. We put students, my appointee to the planning commission was a woman named Teresa Cordova, who was getting her Ph.D. in planning. And uh, she was at the Institute for Study of Social Change, which was run by Troy Duster who probably graduated more black and Latino PhDs than anybody. Troy Duster happens to be the grandson of Ida B. Wells. So, I mean, Troy was like my mentor, so I was a fellow at the Institute for the Study of Social Change here in Berkeley, too, and he headed up the sociology department at one time. So all these things are intermixed. Yeah, well, and such a fascinating story in terms of the timeline, the history, what was going on then, and you got to... I think you you very much viewed your time as mayor as a kind of the bully pulpit to go and talk about a lot of progressive issues, not just in Berkeley. Very but. much so. For instance, getting back to the university, Harry Edwards, who was quite a spokesperson, and you know who organized those three blacks that raised their fists at the 1968 Olympics, was on faculty and had more students attending his class. He taught sports psychology and sociology, I think, and was quite 
he, he had the most heavily attended Super Bowl. When it came time for him to get tenure, it was going to be a difficult thing. But but Heyman, Mike Heyman was the the uh, chancellor at that time. And Heyman said, we're going for it. But Gus, you're going to have to help us. And other stuff, we did some national calling in. Heyman, when he became chancellor, had been chair of the planning school and both the, the law school. He came to some of us with some of the professors who were progressive and said, Gus, I'm going after chancellor. He said, it's going to be difficult. They've never had a Jew chancellor before. We pulled together everything we could, including national uh, friends to assist and whatever else. He became chancellor. Nice. Well, it's so much, I mean, you've broken down so many barriers in your career, and I, I want to not end this interview without asking you about kind of where we sit today. It's 2016, and so many of the issues that you've fought for in your civil rights career are still persistent today, even though we have, we've had a black president, so we've made progress. And so I want to ask you from your seat of the wisdom and knowledge that you have, can you give us some of your um, kind of positive thoughts about where we can take um, our progressive society going forward and, and kind of use a lot of the stuff that you've accomplished and consolidate those gains and go forward? Because there's so much negativity around right now. I want right. to provide some positivity to people. You made it difficult when you said positive thoughts. <laughs> um, okay, well, any as thoughts? As you know, yeah. I worked with Bernie Sanders, and, you know, the millennials were just great. I mean, uh, I was never so proud as the role that millennials played in the movement. And a lot of them told us that after Bernie did make it through the primary, and, of course, we know that there were problems in, 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 in the primaries. I mean, Bernie didn't get 3 million votes that should have been to him in California, New York and other places. And the superdelegates were a problem, right. too. Right, and, and a lot of the millennials told us they were not going to vote for Hillary because we had problems with Hillary and with Bill going back to welfare reform and NAFTA and GATT and some things like that. And But an old friend of mine, Jack O'Dell, who just turned 93 last month, was Martin Luther King's right-hand man, and he wrote... Um, I forget the NAACP had a a regular paper that was created by W.B. Du Bois, Freedom Ways. He was the co-editor. He called me from, he lives up in Vancouver, British Columbia now, and he said, Brother Gus, he said, you know, I've always liked you because uh, even though you were greatly left as I was, at the end you used common sense. So I said, all right, Brother Jack, what are you getting at? He said, well, I was proud that you and Danny Glover worked for Bernie Sanders, but now the next step is the election itself. He said, remember you and I used to talk about when you got drafted in the military, when you reported to Louisiana, um, Kentucky, that you weren't allowed to go and eat in certain restaurants as a black person? I said, yeah. Remember we talked about there were places during the Jim Crow era, very close where we were, people, black people were getting hung? I said, yeah. He said, we've moved past that. But if Donald Trump gets elected, we're going to go back to that. He said, we may not totally agree with and like Hillary, but we do at least know that she won't carry us back to that, and we can put our foot on her butt and keep on pushing 
you know, the next where we got to go. So I said, you're right. And so we started talking to millennials. I, I, I think looking at the polls and whatever now, it looks like she's going to make it. I was sort of set back last week being in Tennessee and hearing some of these white uh, organizers, people in the political movement talking about they think it's going to be violence. Yeah, in some of their neighborhoods or whatever else, and so you have to have an analysis. Like Martin Luther King always talked about the beloved community. The beloved community basically was centered in the church. We had ministers that used to play a role. Now today, church doesn't play a great role in the inner city, but people shared everything. And because of segregation, blue collar, white collar, no collar, everybody lived side by side, but we were there to help one another. But I had to explain to people last week that the beloved community was not an integrated community. It was a segregated community. Many of you were in the civil rights movement, but you did not live in a beloved community. You lived in Peytonville or whatever they used to call that, where there was a whole lot of things going on. And that's what we got to get back to because when Mahat Gandhi and other people were talking about nonviolence and this and that, if you're going to turn around a society, it has to be a vision of love etc and whatever else yeah and such an inspiration uh at your um at the you know age pardon that me for you're saying at. hell no that's all right <laughs> yeah, that's an okay word on calyx uh, but the age you're at we're still going so strong and such a uh, inspiration to all of us so thanks so much for coming in sure. today Gus. we've been speaking to Gus newport former mayor of berkeley and-